With global central banks printing trillions of dollars in new currency these days, those voices claiming that cash is trash you know, appear to have a pretty valid point. Banks give us no return on cash savings, and inflation is swiftly eating away at its purchasing power. So what's the future outlook for the world's major fiat currencies? And are there better stores of value we should consider instead of paper cash? We invited economic analyst Lynn Alden to answer those very questions for us at the recent Wealthy on Online conference held in early June. If you missed that conference, well, you're in luck, as we're making Lynn's excellent interview available to you right now. Over time, you know, we're moving more and more towards kind of a multipolar currency system where I don't think there's any one currency that, that comes in and displaces the dollar. I just think that the dollar goes down as a share of global reserves and as a share of, uh, you know, say, commodity payments, uh, for example. And it could, it could even still be the single biggest but that it's just not, it doesn't have like a complete lock on, on those markets like it has for, for quite a while. All right, I'm very excited for this next guest who a number of the wealthy on audience has asked to have uh, on the program and to hear from. Um, I'm talking of course about Lynn Alden. Lynn is an experienced investment researcher who applies her strong engineering background to the world of finance. And at her blog, lynnalden.com, and through her many media appearances, Lynn provides tens of thousands of investors every month with research information and tools to help them build wealth and reach financial freedom. I'm so glad she arranged to join us for this conference. Lynn, thank you so much for joining. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, we got a little bit less time than we do on the normal programs, Lynn. So I'm just going to jump right into it, if that's okay. Sure. Um, let's let's get into, um, I want to start by talking about the dollar with you. Um, you've uh, written a lot recently about the, the dollar as a US, you know, US dollar as a reserve currency. You've written about its role as the petrodollar. And uh, I think you cover a lot of asset classes that people look into as either substitutes or, or a defense uh, against uh, a weakening dollar. So let's jump right in there. Um, the, the dollar has been in a prolonged decline since the trillions in stimulus have been issued in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and interestingly, at this point, further weakness appears to be an expectation that pretty much nearly everybody on Wall Street seems to share today. Um, do you expect its decline to continue? Is this just a slam dunk bet? Well, I think nothing's a slam dunk bet, but I my my base case is over the next three years or so to see continued dollar weakness from here. I do think that we're probably on the down leg of a significant, uh, you know, the, if you look at back at the last 50 years, we've had this this giant kind of like 15 year gyration uh, in terms of these these big uh, multi year bull markets and then bear markets in the dollar. And I do think this is likely, a, you know, most signs point to it being kind of the third major bear leg of that of that long term cycle. Yeah, but there are there are curveballs that can they can throw that off course for you know a couple quarters. And so as an example, I, I turned bearish on the dollar back in late 2019. Uh, and it started to weaken uh, you know as planned, but then of course you know the coronavirus came around and all the all the different effects out there in the economy uh, you know resulted in that shortage that pushed it up. And so it's one of those things where the lower probability event became kind of a temporary uh, you know that would actually happen until of course we got past that and then it continued with the down leg of the dollar. And so overall, I, I, I do have a longer term outlook that is that is pretty negative for the dollar. Uh, but, you know, whenever it gets to consensus, that's that's when you get a bounce. And so, for example, 
when we went into this this year 2021, that's when you know positioning was really uh, negative on the dollar. And so we got that kind of three month uh, bounce to clear out some of those that consensus. And lately we've been going back down again. And you know really what I'm watching to see is if it breaks a couple of the the key support levels, uh, kind of you know breaks the the, the previous low that it set uh, you know in the beginning of this year. Uh, compared to a number of currency pairs, it already has for a few. And then next, I'm I'm watching to see if it if it breaks past the you know the early 2018 bottom that it had against against some other currencies. All right, can you um can you just give a quick summary then? So you know you, you said you went bearish from the dollar all before coronavirus hit the world. Um, can you just give a quick summation about why you predicted a lower dollar even before we had all these you know fresh trillions in stimulus? Sure. Mainly, it's the combination of loose fiscal policy combined with loose monetary policy, and it's one of those. There's, a, there's, it's one of those things where there's a couple kind of nuances there that can be pretty tricky. And so, you know, when you have uh, pretty loose fiscal policy with tight monetary with mo- tight monetary policy, that tends to be dollar bullish. And so, for example, in the early '80s uh, under Reagan, when he was running, you know, pretty uh, kind of larger fiscal deficits, but then you had Paul Volcker uh, running pretty tight monetary policy, that was really bullish for the dollar. Uh, same thing for, uh, you know, the the 2018 period where, uh, you know, we were running larger fiscal deficits in the United States compared to most other developed countries as a percentage of GDP. Uh, but, you know, we were doing quantitative tightening. We were we were hiking rates. And even though we were still dovish in the historical sense, we were we were tighter than most of our developed peers. And so that was a recipe for a pretty strong dollar. But when you have the combination of loose fiscal policy, meaning that the United States is running larger fiscal deficits uh, than the rest of the developed world, uh, and when you then shift from tight monetary, tight monetary policy to loose monetary policy, as we saw happen during the after the repo spike, that was my trigger to to turn more dollar uh, uh, bearish uh, in late 2019. Uh, that's the kind of the shift for that release valve to start going down for the dollar to weaken. And then if you if you take an even further step back, uh, you know because the, the United States runs these structural trade deficits, our natural tendency for the dollar is to weaken over time. Uh, but uh, it gets held up by these really big, um, you know, kind of offshore U.S. debt cycles that happen, and that that creates a lot of demand for it. And so we have these giant gyrations that are really based around the shifting monetary policy that's happening. Uh, and so that that kind of sets like the the big stage for why it happens. But then I have to kind of watch the quarter to quarter action to see if we're getting price confirmation and what other variables can can cause kind of you know multi-quarter or multi-year deviations from that big structural trend. Okay. Yep. So you're, you're seeing this big structural sort of secular trend, but you got to watch out for the cyclical patterns that can happen within it. Um, exactly. Let me ask you, I'm, I'm kind of going with, with going to a couple of places with these questions, this line of questioning, but one of them is, um, you know, if the dollar just continues to weaken, right, it, it, it is the world's reserve currency that does give the U.S. an exorbitant privilege. And, um, there are many people out there that are saying, look, you know, don't, don't, don't take its continued weakness forever as a given. The United States is going to step in at some point and do whatever it can to protect that exorbitant privilege. Um, what, what do you say to people that, that make statements like that? Well, I think it's, so taking a step back, I think it's, you know, when this, when this current dollar structure was put into place in the 70s, uh, that did give the United States a pretty exorbitant privilege. Uh, but over time, you know, basically the benefits were pretty static, meaning we got a continued benefit from that. 
But the downside from that, the cost of that system kept growing and growing and growing, mainly in the form of a, a structural trade deficit, which really materialized because of the structure of this of this current system, the petrodollar system. Right. And, and I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt, but isn't that even sort of what Triffin's paradox says that you act, if you're the reserve currency, by definition, you have to run a trade deficit? Well, in a way, so there's a couple of different versions of the Triffin dilemma. And so the, the initial version is more about the capital account. Uh, that was kind of the, the gold standard version of it, you know, the Bretton Woods uh, portion. But then when we transitioned to the petrodollar system in the 70s after the, after the Bretton Woods system broke down, then it became a current account problem. And so basically the way it currently works, yes, we, we essentially have to run a current account deficit in order to maintain it. And it's one of those things where, you know, the top five or, or 10% of Americans uh, do very, very well under that system. So if you work in, in finance, healthcare, uh, near, you know, near D.C., uh, or, or, you know, healthcare, some of these kind of like, you know, uh, more higher margin type of type of work, you can do very well because you're benefiting from higher incomes, you're benefiting from, you know, your, 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 your currency is accepted around the world. Uh, you have a lot of purchasing power when you when you travel when you when you consume when you when you basically consume from the rest of the world. But if you are, you know, uh, basically in the lower two thirds of the income spectrum, especially if you're involved in anything that, that makes things, uh, and that basically, you know, would benefit from uh, a different system you're harmed by it because even though you have some of the benefits of it, you're also getting the full burden of the cost. And so that's, you know, th this contributed to why the United States has larger wealth concentration than most other developed countries, uh, why our, our, you know, our politics can be somewhat polarized, why certain regions flourish and other ones became like the Rust Belt. A lot of this is tied into the structure. And so, you know, I think, I think you know, some of the smartest analysts out there uh, like you've had Luke Groman on your show. I think he does wonderful work in that area, showing that in many ways that the, the way that the system's currently structured is actually starting to cause more harm for more Americans uh, than, you know, than the benefits that are outweighing it. And so, you know, this might have made sense decades ago, but, you know, in recent decades, it's really kind of been used against us in many ways. And so I think that there are, there are you know, some groups that are trying to defend the current system, whereas other groups are increasingly realizing that it's really if anything, it's serving China a lot better than it than it's serving the United States. Wow. All right. So then this gets really fascinating, um, which you know raises the question: Okay, so how is that power dynamic going to play out? Um, who's more likely to win? Um, what does that sort of you know back and forth look like as the two factions wrestle for control? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I'll say the pessimist in me says that the people who kind of have all the power in the current system, I think are the ones that benefit from it in the ways that you said. So I don't see them giving up that power lightly. Um, I, I'm just curious, and this is a really big question, but you know, um, I guess, how do you see that playing out in the future? Well, I think so we're starting to see it play out uh, you know, since 2020 in the sense where the, the Fed has basically realized that they're kind of backed in their corner uh, where you know, now they're at the point where they want to let inflation run hot, but they also want to hold yields low. Uh, and so in many ways, I've been using the, the fact that this looks a lot like the 1940s in that sense in terms of fiscal monetary policy, where you have uh, basically fiscal driven inflation combined with the, the Fed who's mainly just accommodating that, that fiscal expenditure. So they're, they're buying the amount of treasures that are needed to kind of you know, keep that liquid. Uh, they're holding rates below the inflation rates. And basically, so if you look at it, you know, the United States has lower real yields on the front end of the curve than, than a lot of our developed peers. And so they are contributing to a weaker dollar here. I think you know their game plan is to have it be a, a orderly decline and and you know basically a, a down cycle without any sort of structural changes. And we've seen this kind of playing out you know pl politically because sometimes you have different groups kind of working against each other. And so you know for example when Trump was in office he was often complaining that Powell's 
monetary policy was working against his fiscal policy and a similar thing where you might have some factions in the government that are in favor of you know basically changing the system whereas other ones are then kind of you know emphasizing putting sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline for example and, and trying to keep the current system in place and so we've seen kind of flip-flopped uh you know political actions and I don't, I don't think this has like a really kind of neat outcome. I think it's kind of, it, it's moving on regardless of whether or not policymakers want it. And I think the the way that the math works, it's almost inevitable. They were shifting at least gradually out of the system. Uh, but then there could be kind of uh, say multi-quarter periods where they fight it uh, until it causes basically something to break. Like the treasury market turns to liquid, uh, like we saw, you know, during the, the, you know, the March, 2020 period or you have a problem like the Chess 19 repo spike. And so these events basically keep kind of forcing policymakers in one direction anyway, and there's little they can do about it, except for arguing about the timing and, and kind of the details of how they want to do it. All right, um, Lynn, I feel like we could talk about this single topic like for the entire conference. It's so so fascinating and it's so so unfair to ask you to kind of try to you know come up with really pithy conclusions uh, here in the little bit of time that we have. But, but let, let me ask you this. Um, uh, do you see, do you see this sort of, um, you know, um, wrestling for a, a, a different solution ending in the end of the U.S. dollar as the world fiat currency at some time in the future? Uh, in a sense, but not the way that most people will probably interpret it. And so a lot of people think in terms of you either have it or you don't, and that if one country loses it, another country has to gain it. Uh, where I, I view it more as a spectrum. Uh, and so if anything, you know, the, the current version of it, like the, the, the 1970s and since version of that is actually different than the previous global reserve currencies before it. Uh, you know, it's the first time where, you know, basically a, a country set itself up to run these persistent structural current trade deficits, uh, current account deficits with the rest of the world on a multi-decade basis uh, to try to have their, their currency be this, you know, widely accepted. And then specifically the only currency that you can use to buy essential commodities. That's kind of a unique thing for this particular uh, cycle, this 50 year cycle, this, this, this kind of structure. And so over time, you know, we're moving more and more towards kind of a multipolar currency system where I don't think there's any one currency that, that comes in and displaces the dollar. I just think that the dollar goes down as a share of global reserves and as a share of, uh, you know, say commodity payments, uh, for example. And it could, it could even still be the single biggest, but that it's just not, it doesn't have like a complete lock on, on those markets like it has for, for quite a while. And in many ways, we've already seen, for example, the dollar, uh, you know, share of global reserves has been in decline for the past 20 years, very slowly. Uh, and then the big thing to watch this more recent, just the past couple of years, is that we're starting to see oil trade happen outside of the dollar-based dollar system, led in part by Russia and a couple other nations. Uh, and, and so that that's kind of a, a more structural shift, where I think we're heading towards a, a you know kind of a period of regional reserve currencies rather than say the U.S. dollar just kind of you know like a light switch going off and we lose that status and another country gets the status. I think basically we're we're at the point now where there's no country whose currency is big enough to be the only currency that you buy oil with. Got it, got it. Um, and I hate to ask this question, but um, you know, in regards to oil and, and you know, you're referring to the petrodollar, um, uh, is there a point at which the US military machine gets called in to just say, hey, look, that's been such a great advantage for us. We, we really wanna like stop the competition or curtail it. Well, I think it depends how smart they are. And so it's funny because, you know, we, we did that in the past. Basically, some have argued that that some of our military inventions were were, were ba based on, you know, basically maintaining the system. 
But when you have a, a nuclear power like Russia selling oil outside of the dollar-based system, there's little you can do about that militarily. You, you, you know, they've been doing sanctions and things like that, you know, for, for kind of related reasons, not necessarily using citing that reason, just, you know, basically, uh, we, you know, we're unlikely to do, say, mil, you know, kinetic military action against that sort of, uh, you know, situation. Uh, now, if they are smart, you know, they basically realize that, the, you know, the way that it's currently structured is that the United States military is doing a really good job of making sure that China is able to access all the oil they want. And so basically, it's one of those things where the cost has gone up and up and over time, whereas the, you know, who's benefiting the most from the system is actually shifted away from the United States. And so right now, you know, it, it's basically, you know, we, we are paying for the system, but not, it's not necessarily benefiting us in the same way that it did decades ago. All right. Um, like I said, super fascinating. I would love to tug on that threat further. Um, I, I'm going to have to reserve tugging at it the next time we have you on the program, but, but uh, just fantastic and really fascinating insights. Lynn, thanks. Um, I, I want to pivot now to sort of why I started with the dollar here. Um, many of the people who are viewing uh, this video, uh, they are concerned about the future purchasing power of fiat currencies. Um, and most of them are Americans, so I'm sure they care most about the dollar, but we do have people from, from all over the world watching and they have concerns about their own home currencies. Do you share those concerns? Uh, and if so, where do you think capital is gonna be better treated than just being held in the cash of those fiat currencies? Yeah, so the answer to the first part is yes. I do think that fiat currencies are not very attractive uh, in this current environment. Uh, you know, So Ray Dalio, for example, referred to cash as trash. And I think that's you know, it's a it's a colorful way of saying that you know basically you're getting you're getting little to no interest rates in some cases negative interest rates uh, to hold cash and yet the inflation rate is is in most countries positive in some cases strongly positive uh, and so you know you're not keeping up with with you know the the rise in prices and so if you're holding cash in a bank uh, you know probably five years from now you're gonna have you know notably less purchasing power even if there's even if there's no major inflation spike or or major kind of you know reset or something like that just the sheer just like the sheer kind of losing points every year is a big issue. And that's actually already been happening over the past decade, where most of the past decade, you did not get positive real yields uh, by holding either T-bills or, or cash in a bank. Um, and it's, it's kind of accelerating here in the 2020s. And so I, I, I do think that overall, uh, you know, fiat currencies are not a good store of value, especially in this, this current environment. And, you know, where, for where capital is better treated, uh, I think that, you know, it depends on what country you're in and what, what you're Major, main, mainly in, in, like in, interested in investing in, but I think that there are a variety of equities, uh, you know, in the commodity space or in some of the value sectors that are that are pretty attractive at the current time. Uh, I, I think there are assets like precious metals or farmland uh, that are attractive. Uh, I've been using Bitcoin as a diversifier. Uh, they're, they're basically, you know, there are pockets of, of value around the, the, the world. And every couple quarters, generally, you have one of these kind of open up. Either you have a correction or some sort of cyclical event happens, and it basically allows kind of an accumulation event to happen until that that becomes more consensus, and then you kind of look for for kind of what else got cheap. Okay, great. Um, so I want to dial through a couple asset classes quickly, if that's okay. Um, I want to preface all this by saying um, there are a lot of people out there, and I'll put myself in the camp that um, look at. Uh, you know, really the, the response to asset their asset prices response to the intervention by the world central banks, not just since the pandemic, but really since the great financial crisis, where, um, you know, at this point, many, many assets are at all time record high levels of, of valuation. And um, the term the everything bubble, you know, has been has been put out there. 
which that almost every asset class is now in an asset price bubble. Um, and so you, you mentioned there about every so often there's a correction, you can rotate you know, in, into the group that's corrected and get in at some better prices. Um, I think a lot of people right now kind of have the worry that, oh my God, almost everything is overpriced and in danger of a you know, really painful correction here. So with that background, and I give that because if you think differently, feel free to opine on that. Um, but, but let's move to equities, because I think there we can make a pretty strong case that there's a lot of equities uh, that are at um, all-time level, not, not just prices, but, but valuation metrics, whether you're looking at PEs, price to sales, Buffett ratio, I mean, whatever. Um, so uh, I guess, how concerned are you about those levels of valuation in equities right now? Are you concerned about money that's put into the, the market long these days um, at an undue risk of like a like a 50% type of market correction that folks like Jeremy Grantham are warning about? Or do you think that those fears may be overblown? I, I think there are significant, you know, there there is a foundation for those concerns. And so overall, my, my base case would probably look more like, you know, a, after the late 60s, when we had very high equity valuations, and we entered a, a more inflationary period, uh, you had a really choppy sideways market, it basically had a ton of volatility, you had significant drawdowns, you had poor uh, returns, uh, you had very poor inflation adjusted returns. And so overall, I'm kind of looking at that as kind of the, the lower end case for how this likely goes, where, you know, I think that, with, you know, basically the way it's currently structured, I don't think you're going to have like, say, a 1929 style crash, because that, you know, in that environment, the dollar is pegged to gold. So basically what you're doing is you're pricing the S&P 500 or the Dow in gold. And, and that's going down significantly and staying down for a very long period of time. Whereas if you're pricing something in a denominator that itself is losing value, it's it's a little bit more fluid. It basically can can soften some of those giant crashes. But overall, if you, you know if you you know if you look at the S and P 500, by most metrics, we are either the most expensive we've been in terms of say the Buffett ratio, the market capitalization to GDP. Uh, whereas other metrics show that we're like the second most expensive we've ever been in terms of say the CAPE ratio. Basically, we're second to the dot com bubble. And there's a there's you know there's five to ten indicators that you can look at, and the most of them say number one or number two, uh, and so that's obviously a really big challenge for the forward returns of stocks. Now, a complicating factor is the fact that bond yields are also super low, and so for example, if you look at the you know the dot com bubble, the equity risk premium was very very low, meaning that it was almost a no brainer to buy Treasuries instead that were yielding like six percent and had a positive real return. Uh, compared to to buying equities, the challenge in this environment is if you look at you know say the past century of data, stocks are still kind of in a in a place where they could do equal or better returns potentially over the next ten years than than ten year treasuries, and so investors kind of have that challenge where you know they're they're both bonds and stocks are are very expensive in absolute terms, and because those are the major kind of liquid investment classes, a lot of people are kind of looking at those two and say, well, I'd still rather own a, a significant chunk of equities. I think if you look under the hood, so if you look at, say, certain sectors that are that are not in favor, a lot of those are actually you know, either averagely priced or in some cases underpriced compared to their historical average. And so uh, you know, the everything bubble is in many ways more of an, an interest rate bubble that then you know, caused a duration bubble. And so you know, long duration assets like growth stocks are at extremely high valuations because they're using an extremely low discount rate that might or may not persist. Uh, whereas if you look at equities that, you know, they, they basically have more of their cash flows in the near term, the next few years, like value stocks, like, like banks or energy companies or healthcare companies or pipeline companies, things like that. Those are actually in many cases, either trading at valuations that are, you know, in line with the past 30 years, or in some cases they're, they're pretty cheap. 
And so you have, and you have some, like, for example, the energy sector that's been in like a 13 year bear market. Uh, and so I do think that there are pockets of value, both in certain sectors. And if you look at internationally, if you look at, say, certain Russian stocks, if you look at certain Japanese value equities that, that have global exposure, or if you look at, you know, some of the things in Southeast Asia, for example, I do think there are pockets of value out there that someone can basically piece enough of those together to have a diversified portfolio that limits the probability of a, you know, say a 50% correction or other kind of, you know, permanent loss of capital. All right. Um, great. And, and preceding your presentation here, Lynn, we had Grant Williams on earlier today, and he talked about um, we're entering a new era where active management is going to become much more back into vogue because the sort of set it and forget it passive management that's been dominating over the past 10 years is no longer going to work nearly as well. Um, I, I kind of get the sense that maybe that's sort of you might be similarly minded here, which is, hey, you can't just sort of buy a sector, buy an, you know, an index anymore and just set it and forget it. You got to really start doing your homework like investors of old had to do and get in there and look for those sectors, those companies that are you know trading on the cheap, but but may have a cyclical upside ahead of them. Is that true? More or less, yeah. I think you know there are ways to play it with some ETFs. Like there are equally weighted S&P 500 ETFs, or there are certain value ETFs or sector ETFs. Someone can play it. Uh, but overall, I do like this this period for individual stocks, as well as you know basically being in certain asset classes that are not these big giant consensus duration plays like the S&P 500. So you know in the past decade, when you had interest rates go down, uh, you had valuations continually go up. You had growth outperform value, and it, and in the market cap weighted indices, those growth stocks became the, the 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 you know the majority of the index, and then kept you know inflating from there. And so basically, it's very very hard to keep up with the you know the market cap weighted S and P 500, or the, even better the Nasdaq. Uh, but now that we're kind of basically seeing early signs of a growth to value rotation ever since about you know summer or autumn of of 2020. Uh, you know, if that were to persist, then my base case is that, you know, we won't do it in a straight line, but my base case is that it would persist uh, for, for a number of years. It's probably a pretty durable trend uh, that generally uh, investors that are more actively positioned, or at least that are in these other asset classes and letting those ride, are likely to do better than to say a pure S&P 500 or pure NASDAQ exposure. Okay, great. Well, let, let's move on quickly to uh commodities. We hope you've been enjoying this excellent discussion with Lynn Alden. The interview continues over in part two, where Lynn shares her guidance on which asset classes appear prudent given the highly uncertain environment now facing today's investors. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below, or head over to youtube.com slash Wealthion. Oh, but before you go, please don't forget to click the subscribe button below if you haven't already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Oh, and if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached financial portfolio review by a professional advisor who takes into consideration the macro risks and opportunities mentioned by Lynn, just head over to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our interview with Lynn Alden. Thank you.